This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is author Josh Winning, who has a new, very creepy book called Burn the Negative. I believe I may have recommended this a few months back. I was so, so excited to have Josh on the podcast. His book is very much an homage to the horror genre, and even if you are not really a fan of scary books or scary movies, I think it's very much worth a read because he not only adores the horror genre as a whole, but he gets into the the various different threads you can get into. This book is a haunted house story. It's got a giant scary monster. It has intrigue. It has backstabbing. It has people who may be going through some sort of psychosis. It has a little bit of everything. I just really, really adored how he took such loving care to weave in so much into this book. It quite literally will keep you guessing till the last page and beyond. I I freaking adored it. Uh, Josh and I discussed today his love of the Scream movie franchise. It's really fun to talk to authors who are similar age that I am because they tend to discover their passions around the same time I discovered mine. And so we get to share our own kind of shared history with the Scream movies. And, and we get into all of those late nights that we used to have when we were younger and staying up too late and watching creepy things and, and creeping ourselves out. I think you're going to really, really love this conversation. It was a blast to have. And Josh is a wonderful human being. We also talk about some random things he's got to experience as a journalist that I was very jealous of. So be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast to hear about that. I want to give you a quick book recommendation. I just finished The Book That Wouldn't Burn by Mark Lawrence. This book came out at the beginning of May, so it is relatively new. Uh, I will be honest, I grabbed it because I was looking for a book that was similar to The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern, which longtime listeners will know is my favorite book. And this is somewhat similar, but absolutely at the same time, very different. It is the story of two strangers who find themselves connected by a vast and very strange library that contains more books and aisles than you could possibly imagine. This book is, it's just so, so special. It is a story that feels like it's about time travel, but also about religious and cultural intertwinings. It's about what feels like a caste system and magic and so, so much more. It's challenging to even get into the plot, but all I will say is if you are a fan of books about books, homages to knowledge, and just the 
type of story that the reader has to be trusted. The author is going to trust you to follow along and stick with it. And if you do, it will so, so pay off. So that's the book that wouldn't burn by Mark Lawrence. I highly recommend checking it out. You can always reach me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com if you have any questions or want to let me know what you are passionate about. I love hearing those. And I give away a random bookshop.org gift card to one listener every single month just for writing in. I really appreciate it. And also, if you haven't yet, if you leave me a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would deeply, deeply appreciate it. And of course, I'm on Instagram and TikTok under the same name, Passions and Prologues. You can find me there anytime you would like. Feel free to shoot me a message. Okay, that is all the housekeeping. I am so excited for you to listen to this conversation with Josh Winning, author of Burn the Negative, Passions and Prologues. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Okay, Josh, what is something you are super passionate about that you want to talk about today? I love Scream films. Yes. Do you feel the same way? I do feel the same way. I'm with you saying that. I'm wondering if we're, uh, I'm in my late 30s. I'm wondering if we're like of a similar age, perhaps. So, okay. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So I I will ask the question that I ask everybody, but I'm guessing I know the answer. So when did you first kind of come across the screen movie, the screen movies? And what was that, you know, what was that experience like for you? I've got a long tradition of watching franchises completely out of order. And it began, well, I mean, it began with Star Wars and then Terminator, but the big one, which is kind of like a bit of a deal breaker, is Scream 2 I started with, Mm -hmm. rather than Scream 1. And the reason for that is, I think Scream wasn't yet out to rent on VHS, or it wasn't in the video store. And so when I asked my mum to go and rent me Scream, (laughs) because I was too young for an 18 certificate as it is here in the UK, she went off the video shop and she came back with Scream 2. And I was so excited that I didn't care that I hadn't seen the first one. And so, yeah, that was my introduction to Scream was just starting right in there with the sequel. I So that first off, that's, I will say the Scream movies do a really good job for people who haven't seen them, which I'm having, I remember a hard time, like thinking that anyone hasn't really seen one of them. But like, I feel like they do a good job of, laying the foundation upon the other movies because that's sort of like the whole shtick is the wrong word but like that's sort of like the whole thing of it is like they are such an homage to horror movies that they sort of lay the groundwork even from the first movie about what you know what's going on and everything so you know what was I remember seeing the first one I'm like this is a weird memory that I haven't thought about in probably decades but like I remember being at a friend's house when we were in like 
I want to say like seventh grade and like watching the first one on VHS and like being creeped out. But what was, you know, when you saw Scream 2, like what was it that stuck with you about it so much? Like what was it that spurned this love of the franchise for you? Oh, like 100% Gale Weathers. I've just, I've just got such a love of that kind of sort of hero. You know, she's kind of a bit of an anti-hero maybe, but she always comes through in the end. I love that complex relationship that she has with everybody around her. You know, her relationship with Sydney, the final girl, is really interesting. Her relationship with Dewey is sort of like so surprisingly sweet. Mm-hmm. And I love that it draws out the sweet side of her, even though she's this ruthless journalist. So you, you talked about the fact that you saw the second one first and, and you were of a certain age where like you kind of had to ask your, your mom to go get it for you, which I love. But was this like your first experience with horror movies or had you been watching them for a while at this point? I think I always say like I kind of was an unofficial horror fan as a kid because I was watching those great dark, weird 80s fantasy films for kids, you know, like Labyrinth and Mm. The Dark Crystal and The Neverending Story, Masters of the Universe, even if I can lump them in with those elms. Yeah. You know, those were sort of like my gateway drug to horror, I think. And at some point it segued into actual full-blown horror, but I couldn't tell you exactly when that happened. Alice, okay, so I love this so much, as I said, we we have... And similar interests. I, I told you before we started recording, like I have a deep, deep love of the Muppets and I'm the youngest of four children. And so my oldest sibling, my sister, she introduced me to the Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. And for younger listeners, like I just need to paint you a picture of exactly what Josh is talking about. Like, yes, horror movies are creepy, but the quote unquote children's movies that we grew up with were also terrifying. Like, like you said, the the Dark Crystal, in addition to being very strange, is also very creepy. Like the Skeksis and all of the, like the with the labyrinth, all of the different like these puppets that you know inherently are puppets, but they're very creepy. And you've got David Bowie wandering around with them, and they're like everything is very strange. So when I feel like it is a very easy transition to say like, oh yeah, I love these movies, and now I'm going to move on to like you said. Or it, it's not that much of a stretch to say I would like to watch just a genuine scary movie because they were so scary, but it was just what we were used to as kids, I suppose, yeah. if that makes sense. And I don't know, I'm not sure that I ever actually found Dark Crystal scary. I think I was more just sort of fascinated by it. And the great thing about that one in particular is, I mean, with both of Henson's fantasy films like Labyrinth as well, there's this like vein of darkness, there's this undercurrent of something going on that as a kid you don't you know something's happening there but you don't know exactly what it is Mm. and that's that's the reason these films have such longevity because as you get older you're like oh my god the the dark crystal is sort of about duality the duality of everyone and the good and the evil and everyone Mm. and labyrinth is sort of like a a sexual awakening Mm -hmm. story in a lot of ways so yeah i think that's there's just something tantalizing about that kid where you're like okay they're they're puppets but also there's something going on here i don't quite get it yeah well when you mentioned the never-ending story it's very much the same thing with like you again for people who have never seen the never-ending story who might be a little bit younger than both of us like there are scenes in that where like this horse that you've come to love just like you basically watch it just give up on life and it's like the most the, the horse's name is artax and it's like just 
burned into my brain and I will never, never, ever get over it. But like, there are scenes in the never ending story where like, it's basically an entire universe is being destroyed by like a version of like depression and just being like, just giving up. And like, these are the, like the enemy of that entire story is just, it's the nothing. Like it's this pure emptiness. And these are the things that we watched as kids <laughs> that our parents are like, go be entertained for 90 minutes. And yeah. And they're like, look, there's a big dog, flying dog in it. You're going to love it. And it's like, yeah. you do love it. And also this is really dark. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so for me, I remember again, like watching all those movies, but then I remember staying up way too late with my best friend when I was a, a kid and, and every like Friday the 13th, TV channels used to genuinely put like the Friday the 13th movies on all night and we would watch those until like three, four in the morning and, and creep ourselves out and then kind of Scream came along and everything. So so for you, for anyone who doesn't know Josh's career, we're going to get to his latest book in a, while, in, in a bit here, you've made a kind of a career of horror. So I know it didn't end at Scream. So what was, was Scream kind of like a, a launching off point for you in the, the horror genre? Yeah, I think I hadn't really heard of a lot of the films that were referenced in Scream. So when um, when Randy is sort of going like, oh, the dawn that dripped blood and, and you know, people are talking about Friday the 13th and it's obviously it's all the movie trivia. Mm-hmm. Those films actually went completely over my head on a first viewing because I had never seen them or heard of them. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like just on the cusp of the internet, I think. Scream 2, they had to change their script because the script leaked online. That was like one of the first times that had ever happened. Yeah. So yeah, Scream became my education. It was like, okay, I went, I went on the internet. People had created lists of all the film references in Scream. And I basically just went, sent my mom off to the video shop again <laughs> and got her to bring me back either a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street or a Hellraiser. And they all came back in similarly unordered fashion mm-hmm. and that's yeah they just sort of went from there i i love those concepts that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation like just watching that these movies entirely out of order like do you think that affected your experience with the stories in any way or like, or like how i suppose not that you would know not watching things yeah. like, like how do you think that sort of affected your experience with these these franchises well it definitely affected me with Scream because in Scream 2 they very clearly state who the killer is in the first film. Mm-hmm. So I remember very vividly starting Scream and thinking to myself don't listen to any names don't listen don't listen don't listen and then the killer is in basically the second scene and she says his name and I was mm-hmm. like oh well there we go now I know who it is. So one of the greatest mysteries mm-hmm. ever written which Scream is a fantastic mystery. Mm-hmm. was completely spoiled for me and it wasn't spoiled by the internet it was spoiled by my inability to watch a franchise in order yeah and so something that i really really loved about your new book from the negative is and again we'll like get into the plot and everything very very shortly but something that i really loved is there you do this really interesting thing that i think of for a lot of different types of horror movies and haunted house movies where like you're very like Throughout reading the book, at least I was like fairly certain I knew what was going to happen. And then I wasn't certain. And then I was certain again. And then I wasn't certain. And then I was certain again. It's like, <laughs> and I love that because I, one of my favorite things about horror movies and horror stories in general is like, there are so many different ways. Like you say, with Scream, it's very much like 
a mystery, like who's doing what's going on. But then there are things like Halloween where it's like, there is no question about who the evil is. And it's just about like, how are you going to stop this impossible thing? And so, you know, for you with the screen movies, you mentioned it being like a mystery and, and this like curiosity of what's going on with these. And that's sort of been their thing, like throughout the whole series is like keeping you guessing as to who the killer is. But for, you know, other types of, of horror, you know, what do you find yourself drawn to nowadays? Is it like the found footage stuff? Is it haunted houses? Are, are there certain things that you're, you're drawn to? I think it's sort of high concepts more than anything. Mm-hmm. I think that it's almost like there's a widening in the the horror genre where you've got a, you've got your really fun sort of mainstream films, you've got your your big sort of high concept stuff, and then you've you've got sort of like smaller budget things and like indie films, and, and you know there's like there's a real there's interesting pockets, and there's like there's the elevated horror as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's the high concepts that really grab me. So like Megan, such a great idea and so that's that's when i sort of like ate up with a spoon and like smile uh which was like surprisingly great actually Mm -hmm. like such a simple idea and so so effectively done like the idea that you see somebody smiling at you before you're killed which very cleverly turns everyone around you into a a menace and also turns all the pictures around you all the pictures in frames Everyone's always smiling in pictures. I thought that was such a clever idea. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just a sucker for that kind of thing now. Yeah, I to me, I find like I I don't love jump like I don't love jump scares just to when those are the only thing that is designed to like creep you out. Like that always that's why I like found footage stuff is always very frustrating to me because I'm like right, I'm like I'm on edge the whole time, which I know is the point of it. So. So like a movie with um I don't know if you ever if you remember Creep by the Duplass brothers like yeah so deeply upsetting and there actually isn't a ton of like jump scares there but I was on edge the whole time but like for me to me like a, like a perfect horror movie is like Cabin in the Woods where it has the horror elements but it also has comedy and like it has stuff that creeps you out but it also has stuff where like it makes you laugh and to me like there's such a thin line and the best horror jumps back and forth between being creeping you out and making you laugh and like giving you those moments to breathe. But I don't know, like to me, I feel like when people say they don't like horror, it's like you just haven't found the thing that you like because it it's like you said, it's such a broad genre. It can be something that keeps you on edge for 90 minutes. It can be something that like makes you laugh or it can just be something that you said like from a high concept standpoint, it's just like it makes you look at society in a whole different light yeah i'm very i'm very suspicious of people who say that they don't watch scary movies because i'm like what how do you process all of that you know if if you only ever watch really happy stuff that's not reality (laughs) how is that helping you sort of like live your life (laughs) without exaggeration i have said this to i have lots of friends who are horror writers i have said they are the most well-adjusted people because they write about their trauma and they actually get it out. They don't keep it all packed inside. Yeah. You'll never meet a horrible horror fan. Horror fans are like, what's that? Would you say they're ride or die? Like they're mm-hmm. just the coolest people. <laughs> yeah. They, they're they just like, like, I don't want to say like easygoing, but like they, 
they are. I also find that the people who write about like this dark, heavy stuff have such a kindness to them and like an understanding. It's like without fail. And I, I love that about them. Speaking of dark and creepy stuff, I want to talk about Burn the Negative because I told you before we started recording, we're recording this in like mid-July and this is going to come out not too long after that. But like this is the time I started thinking about spooky season and Halloween things. This hit me at the perfect time. But first, before we dive into it, can you give my listeners sort of a, an introduction to the novel? And then I'm going to ask you lots of nerdy questions about the book. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's about a journalist called Laura Warren. And she is sent to Los Angeles to visit the set of a horror streaming series. And on the way there, she learns that the series is actually a remake of the first 90s horror film that Laura starred in as a child. And when she gets there, all hell breaks loose. And the thing that I, I loved so much about your book is it, we've been talking about different types of horror, but I, I was, I've been struggling to explain this book to like friends and people like, it, cause like it, I can't put it into a neat package. It's a haunted house. It's a homage to horror movies. It's a like final girl story. It's a mythology. Like there's so much in here. So obviously this, this feels to me very much like a love letter to all of horror, but I guess like, you know, take me through how you started to come up with the idea for this story. And then like, without obviously giving stuff away, like how you wanted to build out all of the things that you've packed in here. It started with the psychic. So in the book, there's a psychic called Beverly and it's her job. She's been hired to be on the set of this streaming horror series in order to make sure that nothing spooky happens, which that is something that has happened in the past. Like psychics have been brought onto sets and stuff. But for me, like that's because, so I came up with the psychic character because I had met Lorraine Warren, who she's sort of like the famous parapsychologist who investigated the amateur horror. She came to Baldy Rectory in the UK. She did the cases that got turned into the Conjuring films. Mm -hmm. So I went to her house in like 2015, 14, I think around the time The Conjuring 2 was coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went to her house, I got to meet her, got to talk to her. She took me down into like the occult museum that's part of her house. And I just found her really interesting and like so interesting that I thought one day I'm going to write a book about a psychic. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really come together until I thought, what if there was a psychic who was actually sort of a skeptic and didn't believe in certain paranormal activities? Mm -hmm. And how would that look? And what if she got teamed up with a journalist because of what you know? And that's sort of where it came from. Yeah. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but I'm going to assume that meeting was because you are also a journalist. Was that like kind of how it, it came about? Yeah. I mean, it's pure laziness on my part. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I kind of thought like it's chalk and cheese. It's like facts and feelings. You know, it's those two things sort of fighting each other. Uh, walking through, I guess, how many times do you get a chance to talk to someone who's been in that occult museum? Like, did it feel like, did it, you could very much just tell me it just felt like a normal room, but like, did it feel different to be in that room that is now so famous and infamous? Like, or was it just like, oh yeah, this is a bunch of stuff that people are inspired by? I really, I don't want to like hurt anyone, but 
it was incredibly cheesy. Yeah. Um, and there was stuff in there that was a bit creepy and there was stuff in there that was just like plastic. There was sort of like, I think there was a, a movie score, maybe one of the Saw film movie scores was playing. So it was sort of like a bit of a circus of horrors. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. Not scary. <laughs> well, yeah, and I kind of assume that's what you're going to say because like for people who might not know, there's a very, like there's like very quote unquote famous doll and like, they may, they made a whole movie about it and it's extremely the doll is very creepy in the movie it's a raggedy it's like a raggedy ann or andy doll it's kind of yeah. like hard to be like yeah that's the most haunted doll in history like that's we all had one of those dolls. okay i was i was yeah i had that <laughs> um I, so yeah i was i looked at that doll in the box and i thought uh you're just a doll the, the doll in the movie is far scary yeah so, so getting back to the book, I could not ask about that. I would have gotten like yeah. text messages from friends like, how did you not ask about, you know, that experience? Um, so getting back to the book, like I said, there's so many layers to this where it's, like I said, it's, there's like bits of like Amityville horror in there. There are bits of like actual like monster movie type things. So how did you go about layering all of the different aspects you've built in that could have been the main plot? Like, I. I assume a lot of it might be like editing after the fact, but how do you go about layering so much in there and not feel like you're overwhelming a reader to not know which way to focus on? Yeah, that was really tricky. I think I'm very much a um, sort of like, I, I feel my way through a story. And if it feels right to me, I just kind of like cross my fingers and hope that it feels right to the reader as well. And I knew, so the one thing that I really meticulously planned was Laura's emotional arc over the course mm. of the book. So I knew emotionally where she started. I kind of knew emotionally where she was going to finish. And that was sort of like the framework on which I could hang all these sort of like spooky things and just saw what came out of my fingers as I was typing, really. I have to imagine, and you could tell me if I'm completely wrong, I have to imagine, you mentioned knowing the emotional arc, but did you have to imagine you sort of knew the story arc as well with the ending or were you unpacking that as as you were going oh i knew plot wise i knew where it was going to end up the whole way through there was like an added little wrinkle that actually got edited out but i won't spoil it and i'm glad it's not in there now but yeah i, I kind of i did know where it was going to end up but it's always that second act section that is always a bit like mm, how do, how am i exact what's the best way to get to that end point mm -hmm. and so I tried to just have fun with it and just be like, what, what do I want to see? What's, what's cool and different? And yeah, what would Kevin Williamson want to see? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and something I love about this book is there, anyone who is a fan of not even just horror, but like mystery and thrillers knows like when people write like, a, like an Agatha Christie style story, I love Agatha Christie stories, but there are a few times where she does her like, Hercule Poirot is going to do the big reveal. And he explains the plot and talks about perspectives that you as the reader never had. So you've never really had a chance to figure out what's going on. Y you don't do that. Like, in theory, someone could figure out sort of what's going on with your book because of the, like, there are just scenes where there's only certain people in there and you're like, well, it has to, it has to be involving them somehow. But you do it in such a way that at the end, I was like floored with how you came across it. But, like, do you, is there ever a worry as the author that you're going to write a scene where you're like, oh, shoot, there's 
I only have three people in this scene. It's gonna like, how do you go about being like giving readers a breadcrumb trail to follow without overtly saying like, well, here's what happened. And it's on page, you know, 160 or whatever. <laughs> that's a great question, especially because that's what I'm currently wrestling with, with my next manuscript. It's mm. sort of like, it's like a single isolate, it's a single location story and it's even more overtly a slasher. And so the challenge and the fun of that one has really been who disappears at what time and when, how many people can I have disappear realistically at any given point? You know, how obvious is it actually going to be who it is? And I think the fun, there's definitely a, a funness in doing that and also trying to figure out exactly how to sort of veil that, kind of put a bit of a, a fog around it. But it's tricky. It is really tricky. And it, it's, it's in the edit. You have to just find that stuff in the edit, I think. No one does it. I don't do it perfectly first time or second time or even third time. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. Like I said, I, that is what I think I loved so much about the book is there would be, I would get done with a chapter and be like, just sure I knew what was going on. And then I'd be like, wait, I'm not. And then like I get to the next chapter and be completely phonics again. And so to me, yeah, I, I have nothing but just like adoration for this book. I, I loved it so, so much. And, and I know readers are going to as well. And I don't want to give like, much away of the plot and more than we've talked about. I want to let people kind of discover for themselves. But I have a few more questions that are unrelated to the book. One, like we mentioned the Muppets. You have yeah. in your bio that you met Kermit and Piggy. I did. And I asked them how that came to be. I'm very, I want to know everything about that. It was everything you dreamed of. Um, it was on the set of Muppets Most Wanted. So the second Muppets film mm -hmm. from that team. And they were shooting, I think it was Levston or was it Pinewood Studios in the UK, which is, I think, the same studio where they shoot Bond. So it was just this, this hilarious sort of like clash of two different, very different things. I would love to see you come with the frog in a Bond film. That would be uh -huh. amazing. Maybe he should be the new Bond. Absolutely. Yeah. So I went on that set and I got to interview Kermit and Miss Piggy came along and she was brilliant. I got to interview who else is there? Oh, Ricky Gervais. I interviewed him when he was in a Lima outfit because there's a point in the film where he wears a Lima outfit. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was just amazing. It was like a most joyful day. All the journalists who were there were just smiling like my face hurt by the end of the day. Yeah. I, I have heard experiences similar to this many times over from other people. I have never gotten to meet a Muppet, unfortunately. Some of them, but I told you before I started recording one of one of the first episodes of this podcast was Brad Meltzer, who I've talked to a lot. And like, we have talked Muppets literally every time I've ever interacted with him. And he said the same thing. Like he got to take his family to Sesame Street and the Muppeteers were like the performers, like, who do you want to meet? And they would bring them out and they would like basically, and I just, I love so much that when you're interviewing people for a movie, it would be so easy for them to just be like, okay, Josh, you're going to interview the people that are performing as Kermit, but they keep that magic alive by being like, no, you're going to interview the Muppets. Kermit. And uh, I just, I, I feel like that's one of the safe spaces. They say never like meet your heroes, but I feel like meeting the Muppets is like the safest version of that. Oh yeah. And actually the funny, the funny thing about focusing on the Muppets themselves is you hold the dictaphone by the mouth of the puppet. And then you're like, no, it's got to be about two foot higher than that. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, that's so funny. Um, I had to ask about that. Okay. Um, 
one other question about like when you're writing your manuscripts, do you find yourself steering away from watching and interacting with horror related content just so that it doesn't like bleed in? Or are you able to, to still enjoy those things while you're building out your own stories? It's more books. I try not to read similar books. So mm. the, there's a book called Harrow Lake by Kat Ellis, which is about a horror film. I love it. And I've, oh my God, it's so good, right? Yeah. It's brilliant. And it's like, yeah, that was, that was when I said, right, don't go near that until you've written this draft. And I, I actually became friends with Kat and I said to her, um, you know, I haven't read your book yet, but there's a reason. And I'm just, I loved it anyway. Um, but movies, I kind of don't feel that the same sort of crossing the streams. I, I kind of, I like watching movies because it's that input. It's, it's lots of visual, creative things going on. And I find that sparks my imagination rather than inspires anything sort of like specific, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I always end with one question. I usually tell everyone, I, I always ask for a recommendation of any kind from the authors that are visiting. I usually say you can recommend anything you want, but I'm going to make you narrow it down to some horror recommendations. It can be movies or or books, but I'm going to hold you to some horror recommendations. This is mainly for me, honestly. I, this isn't for even my listeners anymore, but what is some <laughs> horror content that you recommend that more people should check out? I really loved Knock at the Cabin, which is the adaptation of the Paul Tremblay book, um, The Cabin at the End of the World. And it's just fantastic. It's got Jonathan Groff. It's got Dave Bautista, and it's just such a great adaptation of that book. Really, really enjoyed it. And a really great queer narrative as well. Um, that's one of the great things I think about the horror genre at the moment is it has become this really safe, exploratory space for, for queer creatives. And that is, you know, something that should absolutely continue and be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And in books, I, the book that I absolutely loved, and everyone's talking about it, but I'm going to talk about it as well. It's Maeve Fly by CJ Lead. Mm. And it's about a Disney theme park princess who also has a bit of a bloodthirsty side. And it's gory and messed up and just brilliantly written. It's a debut, so I kind of like hate her for that because it's just so good. <laughs> Check it out because it's amazing. Uh, those are fantastic recommendations. And I'm going to reiterate once again, everyone, like, like I said, you're, everyone's going to hear this in like middle to end of July. It's the perfect time to start getting ready for the scary, spooky season. And Burn the Negative is such a perfect book to kind of kick off that that mood that's going to be all in all of our brains for the next several months. So go read Burn the Negative. And Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. This was great. Thank you. It's been so fun. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. 
It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.